they've actually increased their cigarette consumption more than 500 cigarettes per person per year, uh, more than we would have expected uh, through our model counterfactual. WHO Director General Dr. Tedros recently said, since it came into force 13 years ago, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control remains one of the world's most powerful tools for promoting public health. But is it? The Framework sets out ways in which individual signatory countries can tackle smoking. But smoking rates were already dropping before it was ratified. So what would have happened if the Convention was never created? That's what two studies just published on bmj.com try to investigate. One pulls together all the data we have on smoking rates from 1970 till 2015. Then the other uses a quasi-experimental study design to model what effect the implementation of the FCTC had. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. And earlier this week, I spoke to two of the authors of those papers who explained what their research means and why it's time to double down on our attempts to reduce smoking. So it's Stephen Hoffman. I'm a professor of global health law and political science um, at York University in Toronto, Canada. Uh, my own background, I'm an international lawyer and who brings epidemiologic methods to study what impacts internationals have on health outcomes. Thank you. And Mathieu? Yes, uh, my name is Mathieu Poitier. I am a research associate at the Global Strategy Lab and assistant professor of social epidemiology at York University. And I have a background in health policy and epidemiology. Great. Well, thank you both very much for um, taking some time to talk to us about the two studies that you have in the BMJ this week. And uh, as you, you you mentioned there, Stephen, this is a, it's not something that we have a lot of, um, which is research around uh, the impact of international law in the journal. Um, but I suppose we should really set this up for people. Uh, every time I read um, a paper about tobacco consumption and the effects on, on health, I'm sort of really struck by uh, how massive um, that is. Uh, you you open your paper by saying that each year tobacco is responsible for all, almost 7 million deaths and that costs nearly uh, 500 billion in economic damage due to um, you know additional healthcare costs and, and loss of productivity. Uh, that that's the figure at the moment. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what, what's happening? Uh, is there an overall picture of, of reduction in that? Uh, what's the, where are we with uh, tobacco consumption just now? Yeah, so I, I think there's uh, probably four things that uh, everyone should know about tobacco if we try to simplify it. The first uh, is that um, this is the number one cause of preventable or preventable cause of death that we have. So if there's one risk factor that the global health community and that every country should be thinking of addressing, it's tobacco consumption. It's the number one preventable cause of death. Second is that uh, this century, if things go as they are now, uh, the World Health Organization estimates that 1 billion people 
will die this century from tobacco consumption, which is 10 times as many as died in the 20th century. The third is that is actually good news, which is that at least on a per capita basis, uh, there's actually declines um, in tobacco consumption that we've been seeing since about 1985. So that's the good news. On a per capita basis, we're consuming less tobacco. But the bad news or the worrying news uh, that everyone needs to think about is that there's great regional variation. So what we're seeing is that in some countries, we're seeing those declines in tobacco consumption. But in other countries, like Indonesia and China, there's actually greater consumption year over year. And that's a big challenge. Mm. And um, I suppose that sort of brings us nicely onto what we're, we're here to talk about, which is um, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. Uh, it's, a, it's an attempt to start you know, controlling usage of tobacco. Could you tell us a little bit about what that um, framework is and, and how it's supposed to work? The WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, it's, a, it's an international treaty. Uh, it was uh, adopted in 2003, uh, came into legal force in 2005, and it's actually one of the world's most universally ratified treaties in the sense that 181 countries have ratified it, which means that this treaty is legally binding on them. The overall goal of the treaty is, of course, to reduce tobacco consumption around the world, uh, and the, the the way that the treaty does it is by promoting the adoption of various tobacco control policies, uh, as well as calling on countries to counteract um, the tobacco industry's efforts to uh, further sell these products. The challenge, though, is that this treaty, um, as an international lawyer, I can say that these, this treaty would be one of those that has the least clear requirements on what states actually have to do. And by that, what I mean is, while the treaty calls upon states or recommends various evidence-based policies, the treaty doesn't have enforcement mechanisms, compliance mechanisms, and in fact doesn't actually have that many clear legal requirements. And so as a result, the Framework Convention does provide this really great sort of normative statement on what, tobacco, what kinds of tobacco control policies different states should uh, be adopting. But the real question, at least for us in these papers, was, but has that actually translated into policies adopted by countries that have then made a difference on tobacco consumption? And what's really interesting from our perspective about this treaty, beyond the fact that it's addressing one of the defining global health issues of our time, is also that it's one of the few treaties that has a very clear and singular outcome variable of interest. By that, what I mean is this treaty is attempting to reduce tobacco consumption, which can be clearly quantified. So that this means we can actually measure, has this treaty had an impact on the variable, on the outcome that it's been trying to influence? Most treaties actually don't have that. So think of human rights treaties, for example. Um, human rights, another defining issue of our time, but one where much harder to quantify. So this, these studies not only give us an opportunity to see whether this particular tobacco control treaty has had an impact, but it also gives us a really important window into how international law affects global society and outcomes of various interest. You've talked a little bit about the, the you know, what's in the framework, but the architects of this, how did they expect this to work? What did they think the mechanism um, for change actually was? The progenitors of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control 
uh, we're probably thinking that it could have effects in several different ways. One would be simply the power of the process, right? Um, allowing countries and to come together on a regular basis to work through this challenge has all kinds of uh, learning effects, socialization effects that um, would allow a country to identify this as a global priority and possibly then as a national priority and know how to act. Second, um, the, the progenitors might have thought that this treaty could have make a difference through a normative effect. So even if it's not actually requiring very much, the treaty simply by saying that tobacco control is important might actually cause a cascade of countries being interested in acting on it. And third, uh, people might have thought that a treaty like this could have a legal effect. So once there's this legally binding obligations on countries that are justiciable and then well, maybe enforceable, maybe those could then have an effect. And so what we did is this study specifically sought to look at um, all of those in a sense, because right, if, we, if you were thinking that the power of the process would be the main effect, then we would have expected in 1999, which is when this process really got started in terms of negotiating the treaty, we would have expected to find an effect at that date. Um, we in if we were looking for a legal effect, we would have expected it in 2005, which is when uh, this treaty came into um, become legally binding. It's the norm the normative effect is the one that we anticipated to have strongest effect, uh, and so that's why we throughout our studies privileged the year 2003, uh, and we did not, in the end, um, find uh, that this treaty accelerated uh, declines in tobacco consumption. But we also did robustness checks for the others. So we also reran all of these analyses with the year 1999 and 2005 as the intervention year and found similar results. And so what that shows is that this treaty, there's several pathways through which um, it could have had impacts, uh, at least using our methods, which represents, to our knowledge, the most rigorous evaluation of any international law ever conducted, we did not find any of those three kinds of effects. But the, it wasn't so crazy to think that they were going to happen. In fact, maybe it was, maybe it made a lot of sense to give it a go. Um, in light of this evidence, maybe people back in the 1990s would have chosen alternative strategies. But now that we have the framework convention, and now that we know that the policies it promotes, and we've known since its creation how important and effective they are, we need to double down on, on tobacco control policies and make sure they're implemented everywhere. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, I mean, the study that you've done is this quasi-experimental study, which, which should hopefully be able to derive some uh, uh, data about you know, the, the, the effect of this. Has that been done before? Have other people actually uh, uh, looked at whether international laws like this are actually effective in the way that they uh, they intend to be? So there have been quite a few evaluations of international laws. Um, so our lab, uh, we're also in the process of doing um, a systematic review to bring together all of these kind of studies that have evaluated any kind of international law for any kind of outcomes. But what makes this one unique is that um, this will be only the second quasi-experimental impact evaluation of an international treaty. Uh, and it's the first time, as far as we can tell, that interrupted time series analysis and in-sample forecast event modeling has ever been applied to evaluating international laws. 
And so from our perspective, it seems, and, and from that systematic review uh, that's um, almost done, uh, this seems to be the most rigorous impact evaluation ever conducted on an international law. So we're excited not only to provide evidence that's helpful in this particular issue around tobacco control, but also really advance the science of how we evaluate global strategies like international laws in order to achieve uh, common outcomes that we all want to see happen. That's great. And we'll get into how you've done that in a second, including an explanation of those uh, two methodologies for people who might be listening and going, I have no idea what those are. Before we go get into that, though, you, you mentioned there um, that the framework has been broadly kind of ratified, that lots of countries are in it, but that it lacks teeth, perhaps. So um, how, you know, how broadly has it been taken up? Which countries are in, which are out? And uh, how fully are what it suggests being implemented in those countries? Well, that's that's a, a good and important question, because what some people often assume is that just because an international treaty requires something or, well, in this case, promote something, there's the assumption that if states ratify that and accept those requirements, that they then automatically do it. And that might be the case in some countries, but that's not the case in most countries. And so there's very often actually a gap between what countries say they're going to do at the international level and what they actually do. So in this case, yes, there's 181 countries that have signed up to this this treaty and that have said they're going to follow its its requirements. Uh, but not 181 countries have actually ap- acted on it. And in fact, a couple of years ago, a study was published by Gravely and colleagues uh, highlighting um, that actually most countries have not really implemented most of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And in fact, there's quite a few countries that haven't implemented, haven't yet implemented any of the key provisions. And so what that really highlights is that um, there is this convention, but the big focus needs to be on actually fully implementing evidence-based tobacco control policies in countries. It's not enough to just sign on to a declaration internationally. We need countries to actually then act on it in a domestic context and not even just adopt a law or adopt a regulation. Those laws and regulations have to actually be implemented and enforced uh, within country. And I think I will add one thing to this discussion. Um, There is essentially a menu of policy options available in the Framework Convention. And um, there's something called an Empower Policy uh, Package where they uh, describe a few policy options that might be implemented, and some of them are monitoring tobacco use, protecting people from tobacco smoke, offering help to quit tobacco use, and there's a couple other options. And one of the important ones, raising taxes on tobacco products. And unfortunately, what we've seen in previous studies is that this is one of the options that's been not taken up as much as it should have been. And it's also one of the options that's uh, proven to be most effective in reducing consumption, and yet one of the ones that's least um, implemented. And I suppose that's part of what you wanted to look at in this study uh, by kind of looking at the effect of it was uh, would include things like um, how little implementation or how that patch implementation may have uh, affected the outcome? Well, so we we don't uh, directly look at uh, whether countries have adopted particular policies uh, and which policies. We looked at, did the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control 
accelerate previous declines in tobacco consumption around the world. We're basically looking to see that this uh, this treaty was uh, adopted in 2003. Did that have a did that cause a change in the trend in the variable of interest uh, among those who originally created this treaty? And it's when we with our results, which we'll I guess be talking about shortly. Uh, when you combine that with the previous studies that have found big gaps in implementation in the pol- from a policy perspective, it then really highlights that this implementation gap, it's not just a, a theoretical challenge, but it's actually uh, very likely what's uh, causing um, uh, a slowdown in progress uh, in this space. And in some countries, actually a reversal of, of or a, a deepening of the problem, a reversal of progress. Sure. Um, as you said, we'll we'll get into that in a second. But before that, I wanted to sort of delve into methodology here. And, you know, uh, the podcast is perhaps not the best place to talk about this in a huge amount of detail. So I'll go and uh, tell people to have a look online because you um, write very, very clearly about this. But um, if you could summarize it for us anyway, you've got these two quasi-experimental evaluations, and you've mentioned them already, an interrupted time series analysis, uh, and the second one was um, in-sample forecast event modelling. If we start with the time series analysis, uh, what is that, and how does that design help you look at this kind of question? Absolutely. So I think one of the reasons why this is such an important study is that because we have seen a global decline in per capita cigarette consumption since 1985, if we would have just looked at a year-over-year change, either from when negotiations began in 1999 uh, or when the treaty was signed in 2003 or uh, when it first started being actually ratified and implemented into law in starting in 2005, um, if we just looked at before and after, we would have seen declines no matter what year we chose. Uh, but that's not really the policy relevant question. It's whether a pre-existing decline was accelerated by this treaty. And uh, we conceptualize that in a couple different ways. So the first way was uh, by using an interrupted time series analysis. And uh, we were essentially just looking at whether there was a structural break in um, linear time trends before and after the intervention, which in this case is the signing of the SCTC. And uh, uh, we'll get into the results a bit later. We find no break. Uh, But the other method we use is a bit more um, uh, innovative in that we used country and year-specific covariates uh, to uh, predict um, per capita cigarette consumption in each of those countries and then um, uh, scale that up to the global level. And we... uh, uh, forecasted out starting in 2003 what we would, uh, would have expected cigarette consumption to look like moving all the way to um, uh, 2013. And so this uh, used uh, factors like country-specific um, uh, economic factors, political factors, economic factors, uh, and we tried our best to predict Well, given all these things are changing uh, every year and in every country, what would we expect a counterfactual to look like? And this um, result also echoed the results from the interrupted time series analysis. And if you could just explain for people what what you mean by a counterfactual and how you you sort of uh, 
created that uh, in this study? Well, one um, one thing that BMJ readers um, will be very familiar with is the randomized control trial. And uh, I mean, in, when you're talking about an international law, I guess if we could reimagine our universe, uh, one uh, approach to evaluating the impact of international law would be that we apply it randomly to some planets and don't apply it randomly to other planets, <laughs> right? And so we would do a randomized control trial between different planets to see, okay, does a international law or a planetary law, does it have uh, an effect? Now, of course, uh, that doesn't work when it comes to international law, right? I mean, it's not even the ideal design in the sense that even if we could somehow, let's say, randomize which countries got an international law and which countries did not, it wouldn't make sense because the law has global effects. And not only through um, Marquette equilibrium effects, for example, industry moving between countries, but also um, many countries, even if they didn't ratify it, they would be exposed to a different advocacy environment, a different social environment, they'd have new knowledge as a result of a, of a treaty like this. So what that means is um, we can't do an, a randomized controlled trial to evaluate international law. But that's okay, because we did in this study the very next best thing, or in fact, in this case, what we think is even better, which is instead of an experimental evaluation, we did a quasi-experimental evaluation. And what that means is the addition of the word quasi means that we're essentially finding an alternative way to construct a counterfactual. And by that, what I mean is that we see that the factual is what we saw in real life, what we ever saw with real data that we collected. Uh, but the counterfactual is what would have existed had something not taken place. And so with the interrupted time series analysis, what we do is um, we use a linear time trend to, to construct that counterfactual, whereby we assume, okay, if the framework convention on tobacco control had not been adopted in 2003, we would have assumed that the tobacco consumption would have continued on its steady trend, slightly going downward, since, as we said earlier, since 1985. And that would have been what we would have otherwise expected. And with the event model, it was instead we had, as, as Matthew explained, we created a counterfactual based on pre-2003 covariate correlations with tobacco consumption. We modeled it outwards, and that then was compared to the real world data that we see today. Mm. And so in both those cases, you're, are you assuming that the the rate of decline in tobacco use would stay roughly the same, despite other things that are going on in the world. Um, so there's a couple of sets of assumptions that are associated with both of these methods. Um, with the interrupted time series, we are assuming that there is an underlying time trend that would have continued uh, in the absence of change. And um, in this case, we actually use first differencing, which means we're actually looking at the year-over-year -year change rather than the trend itself. And uh, that's just to get a, uh, a linear um, trend that is appropriate for use in interrupted time series. So that first one is really just looking at time-dependent changes. And in the absence of the FCTC making a difference, we would have expected no time change. The uh, in-sample forecast event model has a different set of assumptions. It's that before and after the um, adoption of the SETC, we would um, not expect a change in the relationship between the dependent and the independent variables. That is, we wouldn't expect 
the relationship between economy, political factors, um, education, uh, those explanatory factors um, resulting in different consumption patterns in uh, every country around the world. Uh, so the assumption is that the relationship between the dependent and the independent stays the same before and after the passage of the SCTC. Right. <laughs> so for people um, who want to kind of look at exactly all of that, let I would say, uh, yes, definitely go and have a look in, in the paper because that's explained there. But given that those, uh, those assumptions that you've made, um, which do seem pretty... Uh, uh, safe ones, I, you would have thought. Um, when you did your modeling, uh, what was it that you found? How, uh, you know, how effective has the FCTC actually been at, um, at reducing uh, tacco, tobacco consumption? Right. Well, um, our primary result, uh, which is consistent uh, between both methods, is that uh, there was no acceleration in the pre-existing decline in tobacco consumption on the global level. Uh, so if we are looking at the FCTC as a global intervention, it did not have a global effect. However, this really masks some very important um, stratified effects. Uh, if we look at high-income countries only, um, they actually did succeed in reducing their per capita consumption by something like a thousand cigarettes per person per year um, beyond what we would have expected. Uh, however, if we looked at low and middle income countries only, uh, then they've actually increased their cigarette consumption more than 500 cigarettes per person per year, uh, more than we would have expected uh, through our model counterfactual. And so if you combine those two, because there are far more people in low and middle income countries, they essentially cancel each other out and we uh, do not find a global effect. And these stratified effects are actually also found uh, regionally as well. Um, the Americas as a whole, that is North, South, Central America, uh, had a pre-existing decline that continued. Uh, so there was no significant difference before and after uh, for the Americas. But Europe is where we see a lot of movement in the high-income countries. They did reduce their consumption uh, significantly. And Asian countries, especially Southeast Asian and East Asian countries, uh, increased their uh, consumption beyond what we would have uh, expected. So we see this real um, dichotomy between global consumption not changing and uh, a big difference between high and low-income countries. Hmm. Uh, and as you said, that might be a, a disappointing result. But I suppose that begs the question of um, the areas where you saw, you know, no significant uh, change as a result of um, the FCTC. Uh, do they align with the areas where we know that um, putting in place the, the guidance within that uh, framework has, uh, has happened less? So that's an important future study that needs to happen. <laughs> I mean, we do um, uh, from a from when you're doing when you're looking at it from a regional perspective, um, that's where that kind of hypothesis comes forward as a very prominent one. In the sense that we do know there's been challenge with implementation in Asia, in Southeast Asia and East Asia. Uh, we also know that there has been higher implementation in Europe, and so that is one of the that finding of such regional variation is indeed one of the things that points towards 
implementation of tobacco control policies as being a main driver. But it really highlights also that having partial implementation in the world might not actually be making global progress, right? Like that's some, that's not usually what we think about in the sense that um, usually we would say that, okay, if at least some of the world is acting on it, and I guess that's, that's right. I mean, we want as many countries to do it, but actually we want all countries to be acting on tobacco control because in the absence of all countries doing so, we might potentially be seeing um, not necessarily a global reduction, but actually a global movement of who is consuming, which uh, in this case, it's, it's actually rather tragic in the sense that there are more people living in lower middle income countries than in high income countries. And low and middle income countries are less, have less, uh, and fewer, uh, less capacity and fewer resources in order to uh, address this challenge. Yeah, definitely. And I think we've, um, you know, we've seen reports on that about uh, tobacco's attempts to gain market share in those countries and and the difficulty that they might have in implementing some of these um, things within the framework, which include stuff like, you know, uh, trying to reduce lobbying and, and things by industry um, in government. Indeed. In fact, um, while our study didn't look at that directly, because we don't look at uh, the activities of the tobacco industry, when you interpret our study in light of previous studies that have indeed found uh, increased focus of tobacco companies on low and middle income countries after the framework convention's adoption, it really highlights what we think, well, what our best guess is, is the mechanism for why we found our, the results that we did which would be around um, tobacco industry um, changing its focus and specifically uh, targeting countries with lower implementation of tobacco control policies. So that's really concerning and really points to the need to actually double down on tobacco control policies. We need the world to take this even more seriously than it ever has before. And we need to take even more seriously uh, efforts to counteract the tobacco industry's uh, activities. Mm. And um, at the beginning, you said this is the you know the first of the this kind of experimental design that's that's looking at this um, for international law. I mean, I suppose uh, the question is: Do you think there are lessons from this about the way in which um, those laws should be framed? Perhaps, uh, as you said, the the framework doesn't have really any teeth to. Uh, to to force compliance in any way, um, do you think that that there are lessons for people drawing up um, international laws? Uh, you know, given what you found, I think we need to further develop the science of global strategy. And by that, what I mean is, we need to figure out what are the what are actually the best tools, international tools, for achieving our outcomes. In light of our study results, we don't question tobacco control at all. In fact, we, this study result says we need to double down on tobacco control. But this study does question the decision back in the 1990s to pursue an international treaty to address tobacco control. So, for example, might it have been better instead for international efforts to be focused on encouraging countries to raise tobacco taxes? Now, we know, as Matthew said, tobacco taxes is one of the most effective ways of reducing tobacco consumption. 
um, around the world. Yet the worry would be that if we choose the wrong global tool, and in this case, maybe if this was the wrong one, that uh, that might have distracted from other efforts and had opportunity costs in not pursuing other interventions. So the real lesson, at least from from that this study really flags, is that we need to be really smart and ideally evidence-based around what kinds of global strategies we pursue to address different kinds of global health challenges. But to be evidence-based, we need studies like this that are actually evaluating past global strategies to figure out, did they work, under what contexts, and why. And so that's why we hope this study not only contributes to tobacco control, but we hope it really highlights a new kind of way of actually evaluating global strategy and actually developing the science of what kind of strategy should be used for what kinds of problems. Yeah, and I think I'll add also that it really highlights the importance of thinking about equity in our interventions from the beginning. Because if we just assume that uh, if uh, almost every country on earth has signed on to this international law, 181 countries, and then they will all implement it to the same degree with the same ability, uh, and that it will have equitable effects in the, the beginning without actually thinking through how that's going to happen, um, it just won't. And this study shows that um, uh, higher income countries have been able to use this um, tool to reduce their consumption, and low and middle income countries have not. And actually, something that we weren't able to look at in great detail in this study was uh, consumption patterns in sub-Saharan Africa, where we have low-quality data. And uh, previously, there was relatively low levels of per capita uh, tobacco consumption. But what this study highlights is that while this may actually change in the future, this may be another area where things may get worse before they get better. And so we really have to think through what are the equity effects of these laws and how can we make them equitable moving forward? You've been listening to Mathieu Poirier and Stephen Hoffman from the Global Strategy Lab talk about their two research papers. Cigarette consumption estimates for 71 countries from 1970 till 2015. Systematic collection of comparable data to facilitate quasi-experimental evaluations of national and global tobacco control interventions. And then the second one, the impact of the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control on Global Cigarette Consumption. Quasi-experimental evaluations using interrupted time series analysis and in-sample forecast event modelling. So after that mouthful, that's the end of the podcast. We'll be back next week with more from Risky Business and another one of our talk evidence shows. Until then, as always, you can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. So until next week, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.